You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I would like to begin here today uh, by calling out to the helping spirits to be with us. So I call out first to your ancestors and to mine, to all of those people who have lived well and died well and bring to us all that is good and true and beautiful in our ancestral lines. Those who carry that rich legacy learned from life lived, that rich, rich legacy that can help us as the living to learn from those who have gone before us, to apply their own wisdom, their own experience to the challenges of our time and to hopefully with our own creativity and ingenuity come up with answers that will be good not only for our children and our children's children's but for the next seven generations. So I call out to these ancestors and ask them to be with us here today and to help us the living do what we need to do for those who are coming. And with these ancestors gathered round. I extend that call out beyond the human ancestors to those ancestors that are even more ancient, that exist here and share life with us in non-human forms. We call out to all of life around us and we give gratitude for that shared dreaming and we give thanks to life and ask these ancestors to be with us as well. And with the ancestors gathering round in all their many forms, the many, many forms of our helping spirits... We turn our awareness in to focus on our own spirit and we draw our conscious awareness from wherever it might be into our heads, from our heads down into our hearts and from our hearts down into our bellies. And we reach down from our bellies to the earth and we just take a moment in this day to stop and to give thanks. We give thanks to the earth for all the abundance that arises from the earth, all the diversity around us, the great beauty all that nourishes and supports and sustains, all that has given us this journey that has brought us to this moment, all that is in the moment, and all that will be on the journey ahead. We give great gratitude to the earth for generosity in her dreaming that allows us humans to change anything as long as we are still breathing. We are capable of doing so. And we give thanks to the earth for this wonder, this absolute, unbelievable, breathtaking wonder that is life. Not that we don't know where babies come from, but we still don't quite exactly understand where that spark of life comes from. And it is for that miracle that we each carry to take a moment, an awe-inspiring moment, and simply give thanks. May we live in a way today that honors that miracle. And as we reach down... With gratitude through all the layers of the earth, letting our gratitude flow layer after layer all the way down to the center of the earth. Let us take a moment in that peace and stillness, in that silence, in that darkness, in that energy that is everything that is not yet in form, that pure potential waiting to move out of the deep, deep yin place back into an expression of life on the surface of this planet. And so we call out to that energy to infuse us and to be with us and we draw that energy up just as you would scoop your hands into fresh water and draw it up to your mouth to replenish yourself on a thirsty day. Draw that earth energy up, drawing it up through all the layers of the earth, all the way up into your body, drawing it up like a silvery clear spring of fresh water to restore and replenish, renew and revitalize. We call this energy in and we ask the earth to help us to understand how to choose to be grounded, 
how to move our energy in a way that is grounded day after day until it becomes our new habit of energy, that we are grounded here in our bodies in this world and that we can take a stand and know what we take a stand for, that we find our place here in the world and expand that sense of place into a sense of home, a sense of hearth, and ultimately a sense of belonging. And may we do this in a way that is not, does not isolate ourselves from others and group us only with those who already look and think like we do. But may, may we create a sense of home that is like the earth, that is always about the great expression of diversity. And may we welcome the other to our table, that we might be inspired and provoked by their differences to become a fuller expression of the men and women we have come here to be. So with this energy of the earth moving through us, let us understand what it means to connect with ourselves, with others, with the environment, the interconnection and the interdependence of the energies here, and let us expand our awareness beyond what is apparent on the surface to this great web of life, this great energetic reality that connects all things. May we tune in there into our oneness, into our place with the great oneness and come into right relationship with ourself from that moment. And may we expand that into right relationship with others, right relationship with the environment and right relationship with the invisible world. And with this foundation laid uh, in a correct way and right relationship with all things, let us draw the energy of the earth up from our belly to our heart and our heart to our mind, and out through the top of our head and out through the sky, whatever weather it holds for you here today, out through the atmosphere and all the way out into the cosmos, drawing this energy up and out past all the heavenly bodies, all the great mysteries and wonders of our universe, all the way to the highest power of our universe. And by whatever name you know that energy, name it. See yourself in it and it in you and begin to draw this energy down like a great column of golden light, drawing into yourself, into your day and into these proceedings, this essence energy of blessing, drawing down and into yourself and your life, the energy of protection, the energy of generosity and devotion, commitment. We draw these energies in that we might feel the benevolence and the beneficence of our universe, and we draw in all the wisdom of the cosmos. We draw these energies in with ease and grace, drawing them into our head, our head to our heart, our heart to our belly, and our belly all the way down to the center of the earth. And in this way, we connect these two great energies. We become this meeting place of the earth below and the sky above, these two great legendary lovers. And it is from this big love that they share that life as we experience it is given form here on the face of this earth. And we give great gratitude to these two, this great grandmother and great grandfather. And we ask that their big love give birth, awaken, revitalize, provoke and inspire our own spirit of our own heart to awaken and to open as a great crucible of transformation that it is, to draw up then the fiery passions of the belly into the heart and draw down the crystal clarity of the mind and let them come together in the heart in that great dance. That great dance that gives birth to that third and most sacred thing for you in this life, which is this memory or feeling, inspiration, or even just the longing, this sense of why you are here. And may you find in that human heart the courage that you need to do something in this day, large or small, to bring those gifts, those gifts you uniquely bring to the earth, to bring those gifts into form. And we give great thanks to all the helping spirits gathered around that help us in each day to do exactly that, to live the life that we have come here to live and to bring our gifts to the world. May these helping spirits help so that what needs to be said is said. What needs to be heard is heard, and so that these proceedings go forward in a way that is good for all living things. And so I'd like to give thanks to those beautiful human living things who are able in their lives at this time and moved to donate financially to the show. This show is listener supported, and uh, if this show moves you in any way, 
Know that you've been moved in the heart, even if you're moved to frustration, irritation, or argumentativeness. That is fine. It means you have been moved in your passions, in your heart. And I ask you to do this most essential of shamanic actions, which is to allow the motivations in your heart to, motivation your, to motivate your actions. And to do something, large or small, to help the show to grow stronger and more vital in the world. You can share the show. You can um, connect through social networking, but most important, I think, is to simply bring the teachings into your life in some way, into your journey circles, into your practices, into your way of understanding how we are here in this world, to share them, be out about them, be open about them, and to help the understanding of how we could all live in a different way to spread in the world. And so I give special thanks to Derek and David and Sarah, to Elise Shay, Susan, Teresa, Kayleen, and all of the listeners who are able to donate financially. For without the financial help, the show would stop. It is important that the that the show at least pays its own bills, and there are thousands of dollars of bills by the end of the year. And so I give great gratitude for those of you that are able to understand that exchange of energy and offer a little bit each month for the shows that you receive each month and for the presence of the archives out there in the land of the Internet for anyone, anywhere um, who can access the internet to access these archives with now going on six years of shows every week for six years. So give great gratitude to those of you that are helping me to do that. If you'd like to do that, you can go to whyshamanismnow.com, which is the show's website. All of the archives are there. But there's also an easy way to support the show by clicking on the support button and donating any amount, large or small. It's entirely up to you, and it all goes directly to keeping the show on the air. For those of you that are uncomfortable with that, you can email me at christina at lastmaskcenter.org. I'd be happy to give you a regular old address for a regular old check. And I lost my train of thought. So anyway... (laughs) I want to give thanks to all of you that are um, helping me to keep the show going. Um, Today's show is actually not in response to your questions, but actually in response to my clients' questions. There seems to have been this um, lull or this um, disinterest in understanding the distinction between soul loss and soul theft. And so we're going to talk about soul theft today. So we are live today, so if you do have questions about the show's topic today, you're welcome to call in at 712 772 1938, or you can Skype in from the co creator network.com site. Um, you can Skype in or email me at Christina at lastmaskcenter.org, and um, I'll do my best to read your questions on the air. Okay, so forging ahead here. Soul Retrieval, Mending the Fragmented Self is a book that was written by Sandra Ingerman back in 1991. And in this excellent book, Sandy named the source of illness, uh, the source of an illness of spirit that contemporary people were certainly feeling in droves. I heard stories constantly from people as I began doing soul retrieval work about how they heard an interview with Sandy or read the same article I did, which was an interview with Sandy about the soul retrieval book, you know, prior to even receiving the book. And um, people talked about hearing it on um, the radio in their car, driving down the freeway and having to pull over. They were so shocked and um, their bodies were just shaking with hearing someone finally describing this experience that they were having and not considering them crazy for having it. So it was a different time, you know, 1991, the 90s, the early, um, the 90s were a different time, especially for those of you that weren't born then. And so people um, were riveted to this information as they felt their own truth cord resonating with this information about this thing called soul loss, right? And Sandy did a great job in this book speaking of this ancient illness. This has been with humanity from the beginning of humanity to speak of this in this book in contemporary terms so that people could see themselves in it um, without having to think they were crazy, without having to make this translation from the the old way to this new way of understanding it. Um, 
And then the other thing that Sandy did really well in writing about it in contemporary terms is that people could see a path to mending that fragmentation that didn't require them going, going over some weirdness cliff. You know, you didn't have to, I don't know, go off and join an ashram or something that, you know, that, that you didn't have to leave your life to actually deal with this illness, to deal with this, this illness of the soul. And so the book not only helped contemporary people see themselves in soul loss and be validated for that experience that they were having, but frankly, were constantly told they had some sort of mental illness if they talked about it or that it was simply psychosomatic. There was a lot of that back in those days. Oh, it's just psychosomatic, right? And so, so it helped people see themselves in it to validate the experience they were having, but also to show them there was this direct path out of soul loss, which was soul retrieval. And to do all of this, Sandy talked about soul loss in the very contemporary terms of trauma and abuse, um, because that language was really becoming current in the cultural landscape. I mean, a bit of a challenge at that time was an issue that sort of rose up and back down again around um, false memories or planted memories around people remembering abuses from the past. And, you know, and so part of the problem that was going on there was, was, it, was again, that this um, therapeutic processes were trying to understand what people were experiencing without actually understanding people, meaning understanding their, the sort of shamanic dimensions of a person's life. And so people weren't realizing that a person can be violated and act as someone who has been physically violated when the violation has occurred uh, purely in the emotional or the mental or the spiritual realm and that that is possible when people didn't understand that then. And so people who acted as if they had been violated in the past and couldn't remember it, there was this assumption made that it was some kind of sexual abuse. And and, and still today, with some even shamanic practitioners that are sort of my generation, there is that tendency to leap towards that conclusion, um, which is problematic because it doesn't actually validate the real violation that did occur in some other realm in the person's life, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. Anyway, back to the topic at hand. There is absolutely nothing wrong with... Um, the way soul retrieval sort of came into the cultural context. It really helped people a great deal who were suffering and were being pathologized uh, incorrectly. They're being essentially misdiagnosed and then treated, of course, improperly, which is always the case with a misdiagnosis. So the thing about soul loss is it is the gravest diagnosis in the whole shamanic nomenclature of, of illness. Um, and it is seen as a major cause of then secondary illnesses, of death, um, and that soul loss often arises from very typical contemporary things like um, the demise of a relationship with a loved one or a career, some other uh, dream of that nature, um, or of significant attachments that soul loss manifests in despair, in immunological damage, Think of all the autoimmune, uh, strange autoimmune problems that people develop. It can result ultimately in cancer and a host of other very serious disorders. Um, and we have learned to speak about soul loss in these contemporary terms of trauma and abuse. And in doing that, we've actually lost the deeper understanding a little bit in our contemporary vernacular about soul loss. So in other words, a person who is sort of diagnosed with soul loss and needing a soul retrieval then begins scanning their life for trauma and abuse versus scanning, for scanning their life for what is the fundamental reason for all soul loss, including, well, almost all soul loss, all natural soul loss, which is fright, susto, sudden fright from an accident or fright, period. So a trauma and an abuse may not actually be so sudden and startling. But the issue in it, why? In other words, why does trauma create soul loss? Why does abuse create soul loss? Because of the fear. 
that it induces in us. That soul loss is really at its most fundamental caused by fright. So with trauma, so trauma is an event, be it a traumatic car accident or a kid being hit, hit on, you know, on their bike by a car. Um, in, in more ancient times, uh, a traumatic accident could be a sudden fall. Um, you know, it, it's interesting it takes people a long time to circle back round to that time they fell off the garage roof or they fell off the ladder when they were cleaning the gutters. You know, all these very, you know, almost suburban things that occur when people fall. It takes people a long time to realize, oh, that caused soul loss. But that kind of sudden jerking of the physical body out of the moment um, and into suddenly into another moment, this this can. I'm not saying it always does, but it can create soul loss. So trauma can be an accident or a big traumatic accident like a car wreck. Um, so it can be this sort of impersonal trauma, but it also can be a personal trauma. The personal trauma of one too many things going sideways in the family and the parent just lashes out that night or you know something things get said or done that can't quite get taken back because in the fear generated in that moment so loss occurred and that's why it can't quite get taken back because it's created a level of fear and damage that um you don't just get over. You don't just say, I'm sorry, I'm resolved because the part that needs to hear the apology isn't present in time anymore because it got lost. And so the thing about trauma is that it creates a sudden fear, either a fear of dislocation like the fall. It's the simplest, oldest form of soul loss is to suddenly fall. And to, it, that dislocation, I was here, located in space and time, and now I don't know where I am, and now suddenly I'm here. Oof, you know, I've fallen, and I don't know how I got here. That's just this, there's the fear in that dislocation. There could be the fear of the threat of death, but there can also be the fear of the threat of emotional death meaning my heart will be broken beyond which I feel I can recover. The fear mentally of a, a kind of a mental death, of some aspect of an idea or a dream. When there's some traumatic moment and a child realizes there is no way that family is now ever going to be able to afford sending them to engineering school when it's their dream to build spaceships. You know, I mean, these, these are... These traumatic moments where our fear about something that makes life worth living or literally is our life um, is threatened at a level where we're afraid that we're going to die. This is not at all uncommon. We just don't think about things this way. So soul parts that are lost through trauma it can be a single experience, which can be the loss of a loved one. Either a child losing a parent, a parent losing a child. It can be a divorce, um, you know, a sudden loss through illness. It can be surgery can cause soul loss. Um, you know, any kind of accident, as we've already said. Certain illnesses, maybe a miscarriage, maybe an abortion, rape, or some kind of violent attack, a violent mugging. This sudden fear for our life or our sovereignty. Um, Back to what I said earlier about violation. Certain things can violate our sovereign right around our heart or our mind or our spirit just as much as our sovereign right physically. And, um, and this is why sometimes people speak about feeling as if they have been raped even though something physical didn't happen. And this is, that's, I realize, that is dicey territory to skate out on. However, one of the things I do experience constantly in people's effort to heal around soul loss is how the people who didn't experience the physical version of the trauma can't figure out why they're so screwed up, right? It's like they don't actually have that physical world thing that happened that is a concrete memory to draw on. 
or physical event. Maybe they don't remember it, but they've been told about it, that there's some, some marker in the physical world. Because we as a culture don't value the emotional world, the mental world, and the spirit world as much as we value this sort of apparent cause and effect physical world. And so similarly, we are equally as kind of confused about abuse and why abuse causes soul loss. But it's exactly the same reason. It's the fright that is caused when we're, when we're faced with a traumatic pattern day after day after day versus the event in a trauma. But um, the repetition of some lower grade event, but day after day after day until it wears us down. This, these can be, um, you know, so abuse can manifest physically or sexually, but it can also manifest psychologically or spiritually, um, manifest as incest, um, lots of different kinds of power abuse and thus stress and uh, in intimate relationships. Obviously, the stress of combat, um, which is both trauma and abuse constantly just by the very nature of that event and then there are um, aspects that come out of addictive behavior which is often the result of prior soul loss and then certain kinds of cultural conditioning can ultimately be extremely abusive so in the case of abuse the single experience alone may be tolerable but the cumulative effect of these experiences over time becomes more than the soul can take. And it's that, that, that moment when we say, oh, if these bullies beat me up one more time from school, I'm just going to die. You know, if this happens one more time, if my mom screams at me one more time for not having um, done what I was supposed to have done even when I already did it, um, but, you know, because she's so whatever, she can't see it, I'm just going to die. That sense of we've just gotten to a place where our line is about to be crossed the straw breaks the camel's back and at that point then the vital essence is lost okay so this important thing to understand then if we're going to understand soul loss and and in that today soul theft is that there are different kinds of fright and that fright is real it 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 in and of itself is a big deal. So like right now I'm working with a client who is very slowly making her way towards this original terrifying event in her life which she is avoiding like the plague. And this original terrifying event most likely happened either in a dream or simply in this interface between ordinary and non-ordinary reality when she was a kid. In other words, she encountered some sort of very scary, perhaps demonic energy. This wasn't just her helping spirits showing up and her not recognizing it. This was some sort of really dangerous energy. It scared her to death. And she lost a part of herself at that time and then continued to have night terrors after that. Now, whether that energy kept visiting her at night or whether she was just remembering the original soul loss is unclear because we can't even get to it yet because this is the defining terrifying event of her life and the reason we can't get to it is because her whole life has been defined in a religious context a religious context that tells children yes these horrible things exist and if you're not a good kid they're going to get you Right? But the truth is, it's not about whether you're a good kid or not. That you might have some experience of coming into contact with these energies, especially when you're a child, often has absolutely nothing to do with you. But you've been given the message, you must be, so you process, oh, I must be a bad kid if I've seen this energy. So now, not only am I terrified from this experience, but I can't tell anybody because I've got proof I'm a bad kid. You know, so, so this religious context this kid is in can't possibly process this information properly in a way uh, to go forward. And so not only does this religious system tell them, yes, these things exist, and if you're a bad person, you'll encounter them, but it gives the child no skills and no tools to deal with this visitation, this unwanted visitation. No skills, no tools to bring in what are effectively the helping spirits in that religious system and to work with them, to protect 
themselves. So here's this defining fright of this child's life. This woman and her therapists haven't been able to really figure this out because, of course, she's got loving parents and there was no physical abuse in the family. There was no sexual abuse. No one can figure out why she acts as if her sovereign right to be here in the world was so profoundly violated and she's terrified because the whole system won't grapple with what little information they gave that child to understand this experience that she had, which she then had to deal with alone because, of course, she couldn't tell anybody. So there's so many layers of fear around this. So we can fear for our physical life, but we can also fear for our spiritual life. We can fear for our emotional life. Meaning, so one of the simplest examples I can think of this is a young woman was raised by this typical sort of romanticized couple who fought all the time so that they could have breakup sex, right, and then get back together again. And so this poor child is raised effectively in a war zone in this energy between these two parents that are throwing things at each other and fighting all the time and screaming at each other and carrying on. She's terrified and her, her lover, the archetypal energy of the lover that helps us understand how to be in love in the world, finally just checks out. It's like I can't process the fact that these two people keep saying they love each other and keep coming back together, but otherwise they fill their lives with this war of hatred. And so this woman lost this, this aspect that would guide her in her own loving relationships in her life. And similarly, you know, in our mental life, mental life, emotional life, we're alive in all these realms. All these realms have wisdom. And we can experience soul loss as a result of fright coming in through any of these realms, physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual. And we can fear death, like, oh my God, if this happens again, I'm just going to die. But we also fear as if it were death in our contemporary world, fear itself. We fear judgment. We fear abandonment and banishment and annihilation. And so it may not be death itself, but it may be the abandonment, the fear of abandonment that causes the soul loss. So you can see that yes, soul, uh, trauma and abuse do often cause soul loss. But at, the, at a deeper level, it's understanding that it is the fear inherent in this that is causing the soul loss. And because we're, we're losing track of this, what, what is happening, the more we're, we're sort of codifying soul loss and understanding it as caused by, quote unquote, trauma and abuse, and that's as far as we understand it, people are getting less and less able to grapple with the integration because it's, it's simplistic. It's like, well, give me the pill for it. It's getting too codified. We're not actually engaging with why the trauma created soul loss, why the abuse created soul loss, and really dealing with the fears and the fears that shape our little lives as children, which then ends up shaping our lives as adults. So anyway, moving along, since this isn't actually supposed to be a show about soul loss, I'm getting a little carried away here. So the primary reason then for soul loss in the past, and this is what I want to look at, is it's not just... Um, fear, which is, okay, fear for which we can say soul loss is a natural response to extreme fear, on unprocessable fear. There's that. But the other traditional cause for soul loss is soul theft. And so that's a somewhat different dynamic. And that's what I really want to talk about today because you're adding another energy and it's not simply you as a whole being and your relationship with what's going on in your life and how you're responding to that, this adaptive strategy, right? But it's about this other energy entering in and creating this dilemma. And the, and the, the soul loss that gets caused by soul left can either be 
caused intentionally sort of under duress by being overwhelmed by an energy that is feels at least more powerful than you do but it can also be soul theft via unconsciousness an unconscious dynamic so the person in other words that's causing the soul theft is not necessarily skilled um, or or overpowering you well they are overpowering you um, they don't actually know what they're doing in other words but they do it nonetheless okay so so the primary reasons in for soul loss in the past would be soul theft by a sorcerer or a magician or a wandering spirit so soul theft by an energy that is not embodied in other words um, the other thing could be that the person strays from their body and gets lost this this is most common in dreams where a person gets so caught up in the life that's happening in the dream they lose track of which reality is real and so they basically wander off from this reality and they they are so lost in this reality but their soul remains um, present in the other reality and as old-fashioned as this form of soul loss is it is not unheard of today it happened it does happen a lot some of the early childhood quote-unquote trauma that you can't sort out with your therapist is because it's not about physical trauma with actual people that were in your life it's about a very real event that happened in the other world or in your dreams and then of course if you're talking about that in our typical way of understanding mental illness that's considered crazy talk but it's not traditional form of soul loss and then the final one being what we've already talked about which is that the the original reason for soul loss the natural reason is is our response to extreme fright or living in chronic fear which would be like being in combat or living in a war zone being in a refugee camp you know that kind of situation okay so what is soul theft then so so this is when the loss of the soul fragment is not natural as in a natural response to fear um, or fright but is unnatural that is being caused by the intentional intervention of another person possibly the unintentional uh, unskilled intervention of another person but it's still another person intervening in your energy in a problematic way okay so there's a, a lovely article out in the internet world called um, frightened and stolen souls and this is by uh, Steve Bear and it's on his singing to the plants.com blog site and I I'll highly recommend Steve and his work and his book singing to the plants for those of you that missed those shows they're in the archives um, but Steve is a very prolific writer and his um, singing to the plants.com site and all of the blogs and articles he has there are, are um, a, a really beautiful resource resource for those of you who actually want to understand shamanism in something other than a new agey way so his article this is excerpted from his article so Steve says people afflicted with susto which is soul loss through fright are said to be asustado or fallen uh, since the inducing fright in childhood susto is often considered to have been a fall you know because kids fall down they fall off things while they're learning to make their body work um, and so such people commonly lose their appetite and strength they are listless restless depressed withdrawn and lacking in motivation children with susto uh, have symptoms of vomiting, diarrhea, constant crying, and insomnia. Um, and many adults suffering from susto experience a sense of inadequacy and helplessness. At which, and the, the symptoms evolve. And so a death from soul loss comes from, from, from growing listless and losing your appetite and just wasting away. There's no zest for life no grabbing on there's just this letting go and slowly wasting away uh, so Steve continues one soul may not only flee through fright but also be deliberately stolen by a sorcerer 
especially during an ayahuasca ceremony, requiring the intervention of a shamanic healer to call the soul back into the body. The sorcerer who steals the soul or soul part can throw it away either into space or into tunnels under the earth, often caves in the Andes. If the shaman does not succeed in recovering the hidden soul, the person will sicken and eventually die. Um, so, relative to that, which is a, um, a description of a traditional sort of pr progress of the disease and ultimately the repair as the shaman addresses this. Today, the example I would say is when I work with people who um, had a, some sort of pedophile in their life or maybe a teacher who has an improper power relationship with their students. But anyway, some sort of person who is engaging in soul theft, that often the soul part is found with the other collected soul parts from other people because these people are serial predators. So these, these soul parts are often found in caves, in dark um, hiding places, in places you get to through tunnels. So this, this idea that's coming out of the Amazon about um, uh, the soul parts being thrown into caves or tunnels in the mountains, in the Andes, is played out, the same metaphor is played out just in a slightly different landscape, but it's still the same idea. It's the same, you know, so in other words, a skeptic might say, well, where does the soul thief keep the parts? What are they doing with them? Why do they take them? Well, why does a man rape a woman, right? Why do people get involved in power struggles with other people, in power abuse with other people? Because they can, because they've got a problem and that's their expression from it. But this idea that somehow we shouldn't believe in soul theft because we can't figure out where they put the parts is silly. They put them where they've always put them, in non-ordinary reality, in caves, in tunnels, in hideouts, in, in places where burrowing creatures that hide what they're doing want to put their things. Okay. So Steve continues, the cure for both types of soul loss, natural fear, right, or through sorcery, is for the shaman to call the soul back with the appropriate soul-calling Ikaru, which is a magical song. But the body must also be cleansed and prepared to receive the wandering soul. And he goes on about how they do that traditionally. So drinking ayahuasca. So again, this, this is the prescription for dealing with soul theft or soul loss in a culture, in this particular culture. Okay, so then he continues. So drinking ayahuasca provides the shaman with information concerning the current location of the lost or stolen soul. Where it has fled to or where it has been hidden away. And, the, and then the ayahuasca also allows the shaman to track the progress of its return in response to the calling song or ikaru. And it, it could take hours or days for the soul to return. So that's one means by which. And Steve notes that from that cultural perspective, it's important to note that the shaman does not journey to retrieve the soul as he would in, in a fright-based soul loss, but rather sings the, sing, calls the soul with the song to the place where the shaman is treating the victim's physical body. In other words, it's calling the soul part back to where the person and the rest of their soul are with the shaman. Okay. So that's one way of doing it. And given the, the energies I have bumbled into by tracking a soul part, not knowing it's an issue of soul theft, and come running into, in the journey, the sorcerer or the scary piece of work that has stolen the soul part in the first, I can see why you would stay put and sing the song. It's just, I don't work with ayahuasca. I don't have Icarus. I don't, I don't work in that um, system. But I certainly can see the benefit of that when you're dealing with soul theft because in a situation of soul theft, especially if you don't, A, know it's been stolen, you know it's lost, but you don't know it's been stolen and you don't know who's stolen it, um, not bumbling right into that energy is a much healthier way to go about the whole process. Um, so why does this matter though? Why, why am I doing a show about this today? Why does this matter? 
Because understanding that your soul part, uh, well, understanding why your soul part left is a part of coming to understand your integration, your reintegration with the soul part once it comes back. So it's a fundamental understanding that is part of your reintegration with the part. Okay. With that said, understanding the soul part was stolen then helps you more accurately approach your integration and it helps you think about how you would change your behavior if you happen to still be in relationship with the soul thief. What if that person is still your teacher? You're still devoted to a course of study with a teacher you've just now found out engages in soul theft. What if it is one of your parents? What if it is a sibling or a step-sibling? You know, that we are often connected to the people that have done this. They may not be doing it now. Actually, they may be doing it now, but they may not be doing it now. may have been a condition of something in the past. But you need to decide how you're going to be in relationship with them. So, for example, a client I recently worked with um, saw her life in black and white. Her dad was perfect. Her mom was hideous. And in this first soul retrieval, we went straight to an energy where the father was actually stealing this soul part. And that because of the daughter's complete attachment to him without any discernment as a reaction to the complete detachment from the mother without any discernment, the child left herself completely available to the father who, unbeknownst to the child, as usual, but still unbeknownst to the woman today, was a complete narcissist. And so the father actually had this energetic system hooked up with the child that entered in the heart because the heart was this big, wide open opening to the father, went down through to her root chakra and just sucked her energy out back into the father and had set up this energy pattern. And while I don't exactly know and have not witnessed this client with her father current time, I do know that she keeps marrying narcissists. And so obviously that energetic pattern is set up in her body and she keeps repeating it. So there's two issues. So we integrate the soul part, but there's an aspect of her in current time that doesn't want to let go of this naive relationship with the father who was perfect because the father who was perfect saved her from the mother who wasn't. You know, and all of this is just this holding on to these old stories. So when you find out that somebody was a soul thief in your life and you're still in relationship with them, you need to really think about why. Was this a mother who was suddenly widowed with seven children and had no way to get through the day without a little bit of soul thief thieving on the children? because she just didn't have the energy to do it? Or was this a narcissistic mother who had nannies taking care of the kids and had absolutely no reason to be, not that everyone who has a nanny is a narcissist, but you get my point. Or is this a woman who had six children, all as an expression of her, saw them all as her property, and that they were just there, fodder for her thieving? I mean, there's, there are many, many different ways that a person could come at soul theft of their own children. And so if you're integrating soul theft from someone you're still in relationship with, you need to understand how you're going to change your energy to continue in relationship with them. And I am not saying they need to be confronted. Maybe they do, but I'm not saying that. I'm saying you, like the little girl with this pathway from the heart down through the chakras and out the root chakra, It's your energy body. You need to remove that pathway. Set up a healthy pathway. Set up healthy boundaries no matter who the person is you're in relationship with. That's your responsibility on top of the integration of the soul part. Now, the integration of the soul part will facilitate your capacity to do that. And it's very probable that it would take an enormous amount of energy to do that without the soul part back. You could do it, but it would take constant maintenance. Whereas once the soul part's back, it can become a new normal. But my point is, what I'm seeing with people is this kind of logic. 
well, you saw me with this, my dad as a soul thief, but he never traumatized me or abused me, so I don't need to pay attention to that part of the soul retrieval. That's, that's the kind of logic that I'm seeing because we've got this codified idea about where soul loss comes from. And like, okay, well, so whatever, soul theft, doesn't matter, abuse, trauma, there's no history of that, so I don't need to pay attention. And that means you will not fully integrate your soul part. You need to pay attention. You need to understand. You need to understand that soul theft is a real possibility and that it implies this sort of second wave that needs to happen in your integration. Not just the integration of the part, but the changing of your story and the changing of your pattern of how you run your energy in your energy body. Now, if you were the random victim of a pedophile who... Um, just sort of move through your life at a certain time and you're not currently in relationship with them, then the integration begins to just take on more um, of an element in terms of your relationship with your soul part and how are you going to run your energy and manage your energy now so that you are not available to predatory people. It's not quite so personal. But it's still there in your integration. It still adds a layer to your integration of really understanding how are you going to stop being prey. That's your piece. And how are you going to stop being prey in a way that doesn't involve you actually secretly continuing to be prey but expressing your energy out as predator. And this is one of the things that I see is the act the entitlement that comes from people because of their story of woundedness and how they begin to beat other people up with their entitlement from their story because blah, blah, blah happened in their past. And that's not how it works, people. Your soul, your integrity, your wholeness is your responsibility. Not that you can't receive help, education, support in creating your own internal integrity and wholeness, but that's on you. That's your integration. And so the important thing is how do you stop being prey without becoming a predator? It's a very important question. And that's a piece. If your soul loss is being caused by soul theft, it's a very important part of your process. So a soul thief is a person or spirit who steals the soul or soul parts of another. Traditionally, soul thieves are sorcerers or magicians who are skilled in the magical manipulation of um, soul force energies. Or they are malevolent spirits who are actually able to pull on the souls of the living. And so the traditional, the two traditional spirits that fit in this category are the incubus and the succubus. So, so this is not news. This is not even purely in shaman land. This is known that there are spirits that are not helpful that prey upon our energy. And they are more in the abuse category, this constant drawing on our energy until we give up. Okay, so intentional soul thief requires some skill or, over, or, or power. And that what I mean by power, meaning someone who's willing to utterly abuse power to get what they want. So they are without certain moral or ethical constraints on how they use their power. So they may not be skilled, but they may be feel free to do whatever they want. Whereas a sorcerer is skilled and may find a way to bend rules and things. So basically, intentional soul theft is coming from sorcery. The trickiness of sorcery is that we don't have that many trained sorcerers in the world today relative to the number of people on the planet. However, when you travel to other cultures that still have active sorcery in their cultures, you are easy prey, especially if you believe sorcery is a myth and that God will protect you. Then you are prey. And so it's very important if you travel to other cultures to understand their history and their relationship with sorcery and whether or not that's a possibility. And make sure your helping spirits, by whatever way you understand them, are with you and guarding you against that. And if your guides tell you, don't do X, Y, Z, 
with other people, doesn't matter how stupid you think that is, don't do it. Because it's often how you engage and open the way for sorcery to come in without knowing that's what you're doing. It's very sneaky and subtle. Okay. More often in soul retrieval work and soul theft, we find the sorcerer is actually not living. That it's history. That maybe the act of sorcery happened in the ancestors and it got handed down the line as a curse. um, Things like that. So they can be sorcery from the past or sorcery from the present. But the other thing that we can find is there can be soul theft that comes from teachers, leaders, and visionaries. That is part of, um, like there is a particularly popular, young, and beautiful visionary right now who has many followers. And I've started to work with some of her followers who have fallen away. And they all share the same They all have their own personal issues, but they all share the same issue, which is soul theft by this visionary leader, right? So that's not uncommon, but, but for that to happen, the teacher leader visionary needs to have some amount of energetic skill and then the willingness of disciples. This is one of the reasons in the cycle we teach about this disciple position in life being problematic, because there's, there's a giving over of power in the disciple position that sets you up for soul theft. The other issue is um, unintentional in terms of skill, but intentional in terms of harm. So sociopaths and psychopaths may not be serial murderers, killers, but they may be serial soul thieves. They may act out their pathology through a kind of um, energetic praying emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. And so that's not uncommon. So I wouldn't call them sorcerers or even teachers or leaders, but they are simply sociopaths or psychopaths that fit in our culture and prey upon other people for their own reasons, right? And the other thing about soul thieving, however though, is what we've talked about, what I've talked about on and off throughout the show is that sometimes it's people that don't intend to do it. They don't have skills. They don't intend to do it, but they're in intimate relationship with you. And because of the intimacy of the relationship, like the little girl with the dad, that the, that the self, the soul is laid bare to that person and the person takes advantage of that intimacy. So these could be parents, They could be step-siblings. Sometimes that becomes kind of a problematic relationship. But they are often healers. The kind of healer, in a sense, that needs you to need them to make them well. So it's a healer who's over-identified with the role of healer and hasn't created this sort of healthy dynamic in their life where they step into that role and they do their work and then they step out of it and they're back to being a human. And that they're not always the healer. They actually receive healing from other people. You know, they're not over-identified with always being the one that does the healing. Now, there's some people who don't professionally work as healers but assume that role in life. They're always the one everybody else comes to and they never ask for help. It's the same kind of dynamic and potentially sets up this imbalance that could result in soul loss. But, of course, the greatest impetus for soul loss in our contemporary lives is pop music and all the misinformation given to young lovers about giving themselves to him or to her and the way in which we are misinformed and encouraged to literally give ourselves away to the person that we love and I cannot tell you how that is probably the most common form of soul theft which is can hardly be categorized as thieving if i'm actually giving it away and yet the other person is holding on to it and i've usually received some part of them and so now if you're all starting to flash on your little teenage love stories or perhaps even your first marriage or any of that you're starting to flash and going holy shit i'm a soul thief too welcome to the club Here's what we do. And this, again, goes back to Sandy's work, which is good work. The simplest way to do this, to deal with your own soul thieving, is to journey and to ask your helping spirits to show you 
Where are the soul parts of other people you have taken and hidden away somewhere? And then take each soul part and put one soul part into a crystal. The crystal can carry the energy and you give the crystal as a gift with no strings attached, no explanation, no anything as a free and open-hearted gift to the person the soul part belongs to. You just give that. And trust that the person's helping spirits, the person's energy and the, and the natural inclination for us to go towards health and wholeness will draw that soul part out of the crystal and into that person's life. Now, if that person would never in a million years receive a gift from you, you may need some shamanic intervention and some shamanic help as a way to make that work. But the simplest one, especially when you were young lovers and neither one of you knew any better, is to simply do the exchange. Put it in a crystal and give it back. And clean up your own life so that you are free to go forward with the gifts and the beauty and the wonder that your own soul brings to the world. So I want to give thanks to the ancestral helping spirits that keep helping us remember how to be here in a good way. To the earth below, the sky above, and the heart that unites us all. Um, Next week, we start a four-part series about working with the elemental energies. And I hope you all have a great week. And take a moment to look back through your crazy teenage love story years and see what what might need to be returned to those who shared those years with you. Have a great week, everyone.